And we are live. Well, good afternoon, everybody, and welcome to another edition of Overtime, which is our weekly podcast where we get to do a little bit deeper dive into the weekend message. Uh, we're pretty excited to have you here, whether you're watching this live, hey, thanks for joining us, or you're catching this via podcast, via whatever avenue you get your podcast. Thanks so much for joining us. What we hope is that this is challenging and encouraging you in your spiritual walk. Um, as usual, what we would like to do is just kind of highlight a couple different things that we want to let you know about before we jump into kind of our discussion. Uh, the first is that this coming Thursday, so I want to make sure that I get the date right. I always do this. I remember while we're live. Thursday, December 10th, we are having our trivia return. So That's this, is, right. this is something that we did back in the early days of quarantine where we did this uh, several weeks. It was kind of like Thursday night trivia. Mm -hmm. Well, we are kind of bringing that back at least December 10th, and then probably you'll see several more dates in the, the coming months and weeks. So we're excited for that. If you want to be a part of that, all you got to do is go to Facebook. Uh, while we changed kind of our format for viewing on Sundays, you can go to just Facebook, clcfamily.church, their Facebook at 6.30 p.m. on December 10th and join the conversation, join the trivia. It's usually a lot of fun and it's usually pretty competitive, okay? like So it's worth you actually setting up a Facebook. Yeah, yeah. Not even, don't put your, you know, I mean, you can just put your name in, do the pictures, like and stuff. Just create a login like you would for an email just yeah. so you can join in and get second or third place. <laughs> he said that because he beat me one of these times. The only I time think. I played, actually. It was the only time yeah, you played. Man, yeah. I still, it, it still hurts a little bit because I had it. Yeah. And then I wanted a Zipporah. Uh, yeah. That's Moses' wife. Yeah, that was uh, darn. Can we get Zipporah. back to the. Video? Yeah. Uh, the other thing that I wanted to let you know about is that. We are obviously gearing up. Christmas is just a little bit more than two weeks away. So just a reminder that's happening. We want to point you to our website, clcfamily.church slash Christmas Christmas for all of our details about our Christmas Eve service, mm -hmm. as well as kind of what's happening that weekend. We are doing a five o'clock service inside. We're doing a seven o'clock service outside. And then also five, seven, and nine o'clock are all going to be online as well. So there's a lot of information. CLC go to one, family, go to them all. It's clcfamily.church slash Christmas, and you'll be able to see the details for that. We are asking if you're coming to the five o'clock indoor service to RSVP for that. So you can do that on our signups page. There's a link there that we'll just know that you're coming. So that's kind of all the announcements, the things that we wanted to draw yeah, to yeah, your yeah. attention before we jump in. So this week, we are on week three of our Christmas series as we're continuing through the book of Luke uh, with week three of God with us. Did you want to kind of give us a recap of what we talked about? <laughs> That's a good question. I'm trying to figure out what we talked about right now. Sorry, I'm getting a spam risk. Um, yeah, so week three, God with us. A little different than past year's Christmas series where we focus on the pageantry, the pop and circumstance of the baby entering the world. That's Jesus, God putting on human flesh. Greatest miracle ever happened. So profound that God was called Emmanuel, meaning God with us. So Jesus shows up and he is with us. And so, so much of our time and energy is focused on the birth and then his death. And we kind of miss the, 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 the 30 years in between and definitely the three years of Jesus's ministry and a lot of that. And so it made sense to actually spend this year talking about the greatest gift of Christmas is God gives us himself. Hmm. That's the greatest gift. And we would look at all the ways he gives himself to us. He gives us his presence, P-R-E-S-E-N-C-E. -E. And so what we've been doing each week is seeing where Jesus begins his ministry. And the crazy thing is the way by which he begins his ministry and starts this revolution that literally changes everything, all past, all present, all future, not just for us, in all human history, is by showing up and bringing himself to people and inviting them into his life into his work and into his timeline, right? And so uh, what we're saying is that what Jesus gives us this year for Christmas is presence, P-R-E-S-E-N-C-E, -E -E, but he doesn't just give us presence. He also invites us in to partnership with him, meaning not only do we get to experience Jesus now, we get to participate in the coming kingdom now. Like heaven begins now, not sometime in the far distant future. So what we've seen is Jesus is, doing ministry he's teaching <laughs> literally his words he's teaching them and people are coming and listening to him and what we're seeing is jesus is healing people inviting them into partnership and so we've seen in the last couple of weeks jesus invite some new disciples in and make some healing of people with leprosy people that are paralyzed and calls them to a new life and a new partnership and 
one of the things that's really neat about the way that Jesus calls us into that, it's called the invitation. Mm-hmm. Invitation, uh, if you grew up in the church world, you're familiar with that. It's at the end of the sermon, and someone sings a song, invites you down front, you go in front, you pray the prayer, you go in back in the room, you get the Bible. All those things not making light of a really, really significant moments for mm-hmm. many of us in our history, but we have taken that idea of that invitation as the invitation of our lives. We pray this prayer, but when Jesus shows up and offers an invitation, he says this. This is what he invites us to to follow him. He says, follow me. We saw it with Peter and uh, Andrew and James and John earlier. Now we see it with this tax collector, really, really yeah. terrible human being that Jesus invites the least of these and the worst of these into his presence and his partnership for now and all eternity. So he looked at what it would look like for him to be invited in. The invitation, and the neat thing is, is when we really understand the picture of the invitation, what we're really seeing is really good because you get this and you get this if you know someone who's getting married soon or got married soon, you get the, the invitation. Right, it is literally an an invitation to celebrate this yeah. partnership. Uh, two people, you're in their presence. They celebrate the partnership, and then you get invited into the feast and the party. Right, and what's really neat is the, where we get all this from from wedding celebrations and all comes from the scriptures. And Jesus talks about that ultimately one day there will be another wedding. There will be another moment where he invites his bride. That's all of us. Really strange to think about, but all of us back into completely in his presence and perfect relationship and completely in his partnership with him. And there will be a massive feast. And so we did some random things where we saw Levi get invited into relationship and partnership. And the first thing he does is throw a party and invites his friends so they can all discover Jesus. He They jump in on partnership and to invite his friends to see Jesus. And so we just kind of look at multiple meals, seven of them throughout the scriptures, where food plays a huge role in terms of uh, relationships, you know this, we know this, that meals are a great place to, to connect, right? And it was more 2,000 years ago than it is now, something called tabling, where people would spend hours, and this is their form of entertainment, eating together and laughing together in perfect harmony and community. And throughout the scriptures, God used these meal times to point to what's to come, this perfect relationship, and to point to what has been offered himself as the, the, the broken bread and the the shed block. And so we just kind of worked all the way through it. Started with the first one and the forbidden fruit um, when Adam and Eve chose to eat the wrong thing and then got all the way to the end of the marriage uh, supper feast. We got to see that. And then we got to see how we get to play a part of that in communion. Mm-hmm. And so if you're with us this week, you get to join us in Jesus' presence, a partnership by taking communion. So a lot to cover, yeah. lots of meals, lots of stuff. And I'm no doubt we'll cover some of those things. Today. Yeah. And as always, what we want to tell you is that if you haven't already watched or listened to the message, always start there. This is always kind of like the second part of that. So if you haven't yeah, already yeah. listened to that, we would encourage you to pause this or stop this, watch that, and then you can always come back. This will be hosted on our website. We'll for see you in about so. an hour and a half. <laughs> so yeah, what was interesting is what we've talked about every week, I feel like on overtime at least, um, is that the timeline, right? Yeah. Like that makes its its kind of appearance every single week where we're talking about Jesus because again, not looking at just kind of the pageantry of this one moment, but how Christ's birth really changes all of history all of history both past and present and future it changes everything which makes sense if he's god then he does have the right and the ability to change everything and so he outside of a timeline right steps into a timeline ours you see it in human history to invite us back into his timeline and that can begin today for you or could begin the past sunday or could have began six years 60 years that that's the goal, that God's goal was for you and him to be in relationship in his presence forever and in partnership yeah. with him. So God's timeline invades our timeline and supernatural things happen. It's, there was a song lyric that this always when talking about time that just it said that, you know, kind of this timeless God steps into time zones. And it's yeah, just kind huh. of a crazy thought to think of, yeah. like he existed before time was like yeah. this concept. And now he's living in a time zone. It's just crazy. I've always... I've always appreciated like Eastern it, but, Standard Time. Um, well, I don't. It wouldn't have uh, been Eastern, right? I don't know what Eastern Standard Time. Mid Eastern Standard Time. What daylight savings time? That's for sure. So I forget where I was going with yeah. that, but uh, yeah. So that timeline shows up, and it's interesting to see that impact. And what was pretty cool to see or fun is that really we only looked at several verses this past week, right? It was like three verses. Why do you think that's fun? But then we also nah, were we talking at about at least six. It was, it was at least six. Three last week. Yeah. And no, then, 
And then what we also did was spend some time talking about tabling, which I want to get to today. We do have a bunch of different questions that I, we want to try and get to as many as we can today. Yeah, thanks for writing them. As we go through that. Yeah, as always, we love when you guys are part of the conversation, part of the dialogue, helping us kind of figure out what it is that you want to hear, what questions you have. So thank you for submitting those. If you do have questions that you want to submit, we are live right now. If you're watching that from our website, you can actually text or type in a question and uh, I can try and answer it. I just saw that Christian said, woohoo, trivia is the best. So there's that, but whatever. Um, if you have questions, go ahead and ask them here. We'll try and get to them, but we want to get as many questions as we can. Yeah, yeah. Or overtime at clcfamily.church. Um, and then also I've got another comment there, but I'll read it in a second. So um, as we go into this, we you started to talk about Levi, who is a tax collector. Yeah. And it was very important for us to understand the significance of what that meant. Because for us, we just hear tax collector, not tax is not our favorite thing. But what, yeah. it, what did it mean in that time for tax collector? Yeah, the most significant thing it meant was that it had turned Jews into slaves. Uh, and the same way you get this, like one of the dangers of Christmas is a lot of things that you're doing around the world, you're buying things with credit that you'll be paying off for all of 2021. Right, so, so we get this, kind of the idea of credit is we leverage our future for our present, which is backwards from how it should be. We should leverage our present to prepare ourselves for the future, mm -hmm. but we, we do it oper uh, the opposite. And the reality is, as many of us literally are enslaved to our debt. And so one of the things that would have happened in the first century is Jews had multiple different avenues of um, expectations for their taxes. One would be... Uh, uh, the temple tax, the way by which they could interact with God, the the um, sacrifices they need to all, uh, offer, the, the, the kind of the admission price to get into the temple, all sorts of stuff. Because, you know, uh, Jewish leaders, they wanted your money as well. And so one of the things that we know through our human history, we want to know what's going on, follow the money. And one of your big hangups with the church is they're all about your money, right? All these different things. And so that is as old as time. And so Jews would have had a lot of pressure to be able to, you know, go to the temple and the way they did that was by paying temple taxes. But they also had lots of responsibility uh, to the Roman government, right? Jesus is even quoted saying, render under Caesar what is Caesar. So there's this expectation that either you pay your taxes on your increase or income or you become an indentured servant and then a slave, then in jail, right? Like, And so once you get to that point, you never get out of it. So, so many people were enslaved. They had leveraged their land, like, you know, lines of credit or, you know, home equity loans kind of idea where they would have, you know, used their land as collateral so that they could pay their taxes so they could get into the temple. And one of the things that really, really created this was tax collectors because tax collectors um, had the ability and authority and they leveraged it to tax Jews at a much higher rate than was necessary, right? This, this Caesar would have said, I want, you know, 20% of their income. And they would have said, well, we're going to collect 40%. The way that a tax collector made money was whatever they could create on top of what was expected, they got, right? And some of you have this kind of picture of a used car salesman. Here's the price you got to sell it for. Anything above that price, the, the salesman gets the money, right? So here's the tax level. Here's the percentage. Anything above that percentage, you get to keep. That's how you get the occupation. And so tax collectors uh, were uh, hated, despised for the way that they manipulated and controlled and leveraged their power over Jews to have an affluent life, and it was at someone's expense, right? We still know this, that people who have power usually leverage it, leverage people who don't have power for their own pleasure and their own gain, and so tax collectors have basically sold their souls to go, we can do this, we'll do this, we have the power to do it, and so what they found is they were really, really affluent, but really, really lonely. So it's interesting, they have lots of money, but they have no friends except for other right. people who stand the same way they do. Right. And so their Jews hated them. And every Jew would have had some kind of experience where they had a friend or family member who was now imprisoned, enslaved as a result of what the tax collector required. In fact, it's pretty interesting. If you watch um, the very first episode of Chosen, I keep yeah. talking about this. The very first one, you see Peter and Andrew wrestling with what appears to be Levi in okay. this moment where he's going, you have to pay this and they can't okay. pay it. And so they're so the, you just see the real pressure of this on their lives. I mean, you have anxiety about your uh, not getting being 30 days late on a payment from your credit card. Imagine what it is if, if you are 30 days late, you're thrown in jail. And then once you get thrown in jail, you can't make any more money. So you just stay there. Right. That was really what was facing these folks. And so their, their livelihoods were destroyed. Their families were destroyed and their future were destroyed. So they yeah. were hated. And so the idea that Jesus shows up 
and he's just healed this paralytic man and told him to, to, to go, you know, and go enjoy life, to go partner with him. And he gets up and he celebrates it. And then the next thing you see is he walks up to a tax collector who may have been right outside that thing. He may have set up his booth going, oh, there's going to be 300 Jews here. I'm going to start collecting <laughs> the money. And he walks out, right? We don't know for sure, but says yeah. the next story, Luke tells us that he finds this guy and he literally says, follow me and invites a tax collector into this ministry, a guy who by no merit of his own had any right to do anything godly. And yet he is, for many, the first people they see that Jesus invites to the to the table. Yeah. And it's highly offensive to religious leaders. It's highly offensive to peasants and yeah. Jews. It's highly offensive even to the Romans. I mean, this is this is a, an, a very offensive move that Jesus would invite this guy in. He's yeah. he's worse than a murderer. Yeah. Right? Now we can deduce yeah. that Levi is a, a Jew, but would tax collectors? Be Jewish? Would they be Roman? Would they not really well, sure? Like, well, yes and yeah, yes and no, yeah, yes. So you gotta understand, Roman Empire is gigantic, and not right. every place in the Roman Empire, for example, we go to Samaria, still in the Roman right. Empire, was wasn't housed with uh, Jews. So right. you're not gonna put a Jewish tax collector in right. Samaria. So, but area. yes, that in Capernaum. It would have been a Jewish tax collector, those okay. are Jews, that would have been there in it. So they would have used one of their own citizens okay. to be the tax collector for the time. And I don't know okay. if, you, if it, you get tax collector by application, by yeah. lottery. I don't know how, yeah. how all that works. But yeah, that's where we find this guy. And we see, we find others right throughout yeah. the scriptures like um, Zacchaeus, right? But this is the first one we see. This guy gets invited in. By the way, this is probably why Zacchaeus is pretty interested in Jesus in that story later is he's going, hey, I know he's invited a different tax collector in. Maybe, maybe there's scope mm -hmm. for me. Mm -hmm. Right? There's something to think about there. So, yeah. And and I didn't cover it because we're not 100% positive and it doesn't really matter for this message uh, this week. But there is a lot of scholars who would argue that Matthew is Levi. Levi is Matthew. So the okay. writer of the gospel, Matthew, is this tax collector, which is pretty okay. profound because Luke would have already read this guy's biography before writing his own biography and including this story yeah. in there. So there's a good guess that this disciple or this tax collector becomes a disciple who becomes a first century apostle mm. who's writing the story, which is a pretty big turnaround in yeah. terms of human history that this guy would be invited into all that. Yeah. So Jesus is inviting him in. I can imagine you, you had talked about kind of how tax collectors were the lowest of the low. Like you could not get any lower. That was the bottom no, of the barrel. I, a murderer is better because it just affects one family. Right. 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 This affects every, anyone and everyone who comes in contact with this person. His lives are made worse yeah. as a result of their interaction with this person. Yeah. And, and I feel like the, the question, the obviously kind of uh, the application to our life is, is just that, right? Mm -hmm. Like it doesn't matter who we are, what we've done. That God is calling us to call and follow Him, like to to leave what we own, to leave what we know, and to pursue Him. Yeah. So you got two pieces of this that we can consider. One, he immediately tell he tells uh, Levi to follow, and you know some of the passages say he he just follows. Others says immediately. Pretty important, I think, that some of the translations just go and go. The language here means he didn't. Con he just did it immediately, yeah. right? Like it's not in the language, that's not its own word, but it was cause effect, just like yeah. that, right? So we can get some stuff like, you know, delayed obedience is disobedience, partial obedience is disobedience. So you see a guy be fully obedient. So what that means is Jesus invites the same thing to you regardless of your circumstances. But mm -hmm. here's the other thing it means. That means that person who did the worst thing for you, to you, Jesus really wants them transformed as well. Like you're mm -hmm. going to see it this week that Luke is going to tell us about the 12 that have been invited. No, I'm sorry, on the 27th. He's going to tell us about the 12 that have been invited. And he's going to say one of them was Judas, Judas Iscariot, who betrayed Jesus. And yet, Jesus still invites him to the table. Yeah. Jesus still washes his feet. Right? I mean, there's so much to think about there. So there's this kind of this two-pronged approach. Yep, it's available to you. Hmm. But it's also available to your worst enemy, which means yeah. the way you view that person is different than the way that Jesus views them. So, Yeah, so I, just kind of going into the text, so... 27 he went out and saw a tax collector named levi sitting in a tax booth he said to him follow me uh and leaving everything he rose uh, sorry i just lost my spot he rose and followed him verse 29 and levi made a great feast in his house where there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at the table with them um maybe this is the point where, like do you want to talk about tabling what was the idea of tabling like anything more that you wanted to expound on like i, I don't know if you take it back to all the way but why was tabling such an important part of that culture? Well, well I think we understand it now because of COVID. So yeah, we're right. Just like, uh, there is a season. Like, people are literally watching 
amateurs play golf, and there was like this, this game of horse, like basketball horse, played at people's homes against each other on ESPN, and it was horrific. But you watched it. Why did you watch it? Because there was nothing else to do. Right. What did you find in those times that you pulled up the board games? I haven't played board games yeah. in forever. That so you spent more time with your family. Hopefully, you didn't retreat to you know devices, right? And you found really meaningful time. And the reason you found meaningful time is there is not other things that could distract you from that meaningful time. You couldn't go to the event. You couldn't watch the event. You couldn't participate in the event, right? All that gets shut down. And so you kind of have a about the picture of what first century life was like. There wasn't a lot to do, right? Like, Capernaum didn't have its local theater, you know, like you could go to every single night, right? There wasn't that. You couldn't you couldn't broadcast, you know, the greatest things from Jerusalem on TV. And so there was just not a lot of other options. So what did these people do with their time? Well, they slept. They, uh, and most of them, by the way, 98, 95% of the men couldn't read or write. So you can deduce even... Last women and children. So it's not like they sat around and read books. So what do you do with all your time? Like, what, how do you, how do you fill that time? And what they did is their greatest form of entertainment interaction was tabling, where they would have long meals together, kind of like you imagine, like a supper club. But it would happen often, weekly, daily. Even then, a big part of the evening was these shared meals and shared community, and they would slow their role in it. Right? Like it would be. A, a long process. So probably the greatest level of entertainment for people in the first century was this, was mealtime. So really to us, even for me, it's so terrible. Like I don't usually take a lunch break unless I'm meeting with someone. I'm just, I mean, I literally got out of the meeting, ran to 7-Eleven, got me a soda and two hot dogs, gobbled them up and came up here, right? It's uh, Food is a means to an end. More calories, don't want to be hungry, a better focus. But for them, food was about pleasure and community and all those things. And so now for them, this was a the highlight of their day and week. They would share meals together and they would bake bread together. They'd break it and then they would share different olive oils. I mean, all these different things are just a part of every culture from peasant culture to wealthy culture. Like kings would have feasts and the people there. That was just a big, big, big part of their culture. So it wouldn't have been that unusual for even... Levi to gather with his other tax collector friends who um, weren't white either, right? This mm-hmm. is Ben's only community. So what we see happen here is that this isn't that Levi goes and creates this big thing. It's like he already had this thing, already had this community, and all he does is he takes the focus of the community and points it to the, the major focus, which is Jesus, right? Mm-hmm. So right now I'll share with our staff that only about one in six of our church family is in community right now, like in terms of godly community. But many of you are in community. You just you just haven't put the focus on the thing I think you should put the focus on, which is Jesus and his mission. And so for the first time, we see this pivot in the middle of the feast that Levi is going to put the focus on the main thing. So they've always found community with each other. But now they're going to look for the reason and purpose of this community exists. Yeah. And they're going to put the focus and the attention on and the partnership on Jesus here. And so a feast would have been normal, but a huge celebration. And so Levi throws a party and I think we got to do better at this. I think we got to figure it out. I think we got to build our homes around this idea. Like how do we have open spaces where lots of people come in? How do we you know, get over the fact that there'll be dirt that will come in when people come in and we see our homes as a tool of ministry and not just a place of refuge for ourselves mm-hmm. and our family. And so that's what Levi does. He takes everything he has, he invites people in and he points them to Jesus, lots to learn, I think, yeah. for us in that. So if we can get back to the first century feast, party, and tabling, it does a lot for community in 2020 and also does a lot for partnership and ministry in 2020. So I do want to kind of talk about those, the tabling that you talked about towards the end of the message of the seven specific ways that, like, Jesus throughout history, again, jumping around the timeline, kind yeah. of looks at that. But but maybe we can save that to later. I, okay. I want to kind of transition into some of the questions. So um, one of the questions is this, and there's kind of a long setup, so I want to try and read what's pertinent to give the context. It says, um, in what we've covered in Luke through chapter 5, we are seeing Jesus asking people to follow him. It does not appear that Jesus has approached the followers about sin themselves. It's not apparent that Jesus has forgiven their sins when he invites them to follow him. Yet, Jesus addresses and forgives the sins of the paralytic. This is what we saw uh, last week or the week before. Uh, Luke 5, 8, Simon Peter recognized he was a sinful man, but there is nothing said about Simon Peter's sin being forgiving. Am I missing something, or are we to assume that in being called to follow, that there was a forgiveness somewhere in that invitation? Yeah, so uh, 
let's think about this. So we, we really see um, forgiveness of sins is a really important part of our soteriology, our salvation, right? Yeah. That uh, forgiveness of sins is what God came to do. In fact, it was so interesting. Uh, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So, so we got that piece, right? And uh, even the proclamations, which were so confusing, is that they, all the Jews knew that they needed a Savior. But they didn't understand, and there's the proclamation that happens, that he takes away the sin, your sin. And so uh, there's two things to think about in terms of sin, and I think we'll probably have to cover this multiple times throughout this talk, even or this time. There's the sin, the verb. Yeah. We we're, we sin, like we say that, we do that, we think that, we don't do that. There's the, the action verb of sinning, right? That's a, But that is the manifestation of something much greater, which is we are sinners, not just right. sinning, but sinners. So there's sin, the verb, which we really get caught up in, right? And then there's sin, the noun, which is the state of being that we are. And that, the sin, this means we have forfeited all of our rights in the kingdom. So we used to go all the way back to Adam and Eve in the garden. They eat the fruit and they forfeit their rights. They right. no longer have rights in the kingdom. They no longer have a seat at the table, right? right. That is a result of sin. Their sin name, eating a fruit, led them to a place of sin, their noun of who they are. And so um, when you see uh, Peter make that acknowledgement that you talk about, he is acknowledging that he is a sinner, that he had, he, there is something wrong with this state of being. And so it could get a little confusing, but really what you're seeing is Jesus is right now inviting over and over again people who are very aware that they are sinners. This tax collector would have been aware that he is a sinner. Why else yeah. does he throw a feast? This guy welcomes me in, but I am an outcast. The the paralyzed is in a sinful state, right? They would have connected sin and that their body, not that it's always the case, to, to one another. It would have been a result of the state that they're in. Peter and Andrew and James and John would have recognized they didn't go to the synagogue. They were not allowed in the synagogue or they couldn't participate in the synagogue because they were fishermen on Saturdays and Sundays, right? And so as the result, they would have been aware that they were sinners. And so it's easy to deduce that really who Jesus is starting with are the people who are fully aware mm. of their nature because yeah. they weren't invited into the kingdom, yeah. right? They didn't get to follow a rabbi. And so they would have come to that conclusion. I shared this a little bit on Sunday that the kind of the idea is that kids would have grown up going, I want to be in the club. I want to be in the yeah. club. The parents have been like, you're going to Hebrew school. You got to be in the club. Yeah. Right. And there to come a day where they have found out they weren't in the club. Mm. And then they had to do all the duties just to maybe get close to the club, mm. like to sacrifice their things. And so they were already, these folks are already keenly aware of them being outsiders too. Yeah, the, the kingdom of God. They would have been aware of that. And so when Jesus shows up and says, follow me, they're going, my heart for as long as I've been alive has longed to follow the king, to be in, to have a seat at the table. And so what you see here is Jesus is showing back up and inviting them in. We go, well, but there has to be some kind of repentance, right? Yeah. There's repentance for sin. Yeah, yeah, repentance changed the way you think. And what we've seen so far is so important that every single one of these folks, when they're invited in, what do they do? Let me just read it to you. And leaving everything. Yeah. He rose and followed him. So this isn't just he got invited and he follows. There is a change of thought, the change of way that they literally left everything. So in Psalm 45, it says, forget your people in your father's house. Therefore, the king is enthralled. Uh, listen to a daughter, consider and give ear. Forget your people in your father's house. That is a sign of repentance. You change the way you think about all the things in your life. Yeah. You change the way. So when Jesus says he came to offer, not, not the righteous, but to call people to repentance, what you see here with Levi or with Peter and James and John and Andrew or the paralytic is actually that. It is true and actual repentance, which is so different. That's why I think I want to go back to this invitation as opposed to praying the prayer. Because there should be, as a result of the changing your thinking, there should be a change of your beliefs and a change of your actions. What you see immediately is this guy gets invited and he, yeah. he sees Jesus, he becomes a follower of Jesus, and it changes his behavior. And he literally left everything. Here's what that means. He left the money on the table. Yeah. He left the money on the table like that. That no longer was something he loved or cared about. And he started following Jesus. So what you see there is someone who's keenly aware that they're an outsider and don't have a seat at the table, who gets invited to the table, opens the invitation, decides to go, I want to seat at the table, and then immediately leaves everything and follows it. Yeah. So you see this salvation happen as a result of the invitation that only comes yeah. from God and the result of repentance where you leave the things that don't bring you salvation and go to the only thing that can, which is Jesus. I was thinking about yeah. Hebrews chapter 11. It's like by faith, like Abram left his, yeah. his home and by faith, 
you know, Noah built the ark, like if for things yet to come. So I, I feel like, it, is it similar to that? Like you're saying the same thing. It's, it's by the action and the attitude that there is confession yeah. of sin, or at least understanding that he is the way and I am not. Yeah. So let me yeah, clear this up. Yeah. So you, uh, even in the scripture says you can't, faith comes from hearing. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. And hearing comes from the word of God. Right. So this guy is going to hear. What does yeah. he want to hear? Literally the words of God going, you're welcome here. Yeah. You're welcome here. Like literally, this is like Jesus walking up and going, here's your gift. Open it. And you go, oh, I'm just not so sure. I'm not sure. Ready. The repentance piece is going, whatever's in here is better than whatever I yeah. could hope for. And you open it. That's what we see here. So there is a salvation process that's yeah. happening. It just is all caught up in this moment of already un- already awareness. Jesus invites and then they repent. Yeah. Uh, so kind of moving on to a question that's probably what we had seen last week, and it was kind of surrounding the word blasphemy. So the word blasphemy appears frequently in Scripture and reflects it's a major sin. Um, I see in Scripture the accusations of blasphemy used against God as against the Holy Spirit. In Luke five twenty one, the Pharisees accused Jesus of blasphemy. Uh, uh, this, is, am I, this is what I'm thinking is against God. However, Matthew twelve thirty one in the NIV and it says, and so I tell you, every sin and blasphemy uh, will be forgiven men, but blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, against the Spirit, will not be forgiven. Can you explain about blasphemy as it is used in Scripture, and and what does that mean to us today? Yeah, um, that's so interesting. It's like, oh, I know the Greek word for blasphemy. It's blasphemia. <laughs> I, think, I, mean, I think literally it's just a, a pretty direct translation there. But okay. blasphemy is changing what is right to what's wrong. That's okay. essentially what it is. Changing what's right to what's wrong. And so when Jesus was saying he was God, they're going, no, no, God's up there. You're here. That's not right. That's wrong. So therefore, God can't be with us because he's up there somewhere, right? Mm-hmm. And so if you're saying you're here with us, they're going, that can't be the case because God can't doesn't dwell with his people, right? He God could be back there behind the curtain, but he can't be here. And since you're saying he's here, that's wrong because God's over there, which is right. So therefore, you're blasting because what you are saying is wrong when you are declaring that it to be right, right? And so you see it in Romans chapter one, where it says they exchanged the truth for a lie. Yeah. That's literally what, that, that's the picture of blasphemy. So in Romans one, it talks about how God eventually just gives us our way and says, if you want to chase after your pleasures, he, one of the scariest things, the thing I pray for for myself, my wife, my kids, our church is, boy, God, would you not turn us over to our mm-hmm. desires, right? And so mm-hmm. eventually that happens. And you see it in our culture, by the way, now that I want to be like a bad culture, but you see it over and over again. And it says that they stop looking at creator and instead start start worshiping creation. Most of them ourselves are the people, right? And he says they exchange the truth of creator God who established the world and being a good father and invited us into his presence and his partnership. They exchange that truth for a lie, which is it's all about me or it's all about them. Mm-hmm. And so that's what blasphemy is, is exchanging truth for a lie. So when they acknowledge Jesus as a blasphemer, they were wrong because they thought yeah. that was true is God exists behind the curtain. He's got, that's the whole story of Emmanuel. God no longer exists behind the curtain. Yeah. So they had this old covenant way of viewing God, old Testament way of viewing God. When all of a sudden Jesus came to establish a new way and they could not wrap their minds around it. So their only response was that must be blasphemy because that's not how I've ever experienced or told people about God. It's different. And so that's what blasphemy is. No. So uh, you see Jesus being accused of that. Wow. At the same time, the folks are actually the ones who are doing the blasphemy because they're going, you are telling me that it's true, but that's wrong, right? So they're exchanging what's true, Jesus, for what's a lie, that you can't get to God but through us, right? So you see literally this paradox going, you're a blasphemer. No, you're a blasphemer. You know, like that kind of thing. And only one of those is true. And so these Pharisees and these religious leaders were making declarations of blasphemy to the one who they were accusing of blasphemy. It's called projection, right? And so you see that there, really, really important. But what I think the other part of the question is, but I've also heard about the unpardonable sin, right? right There's this right. sin in Scripture, which should scare us, by the way, that there is right. only one God forgives everything except for this one, this one, <laughs> this blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, right? And so, uh, so how is that unpardonable? And here's kind of the thing. What we understand in the Scriptures is that uh, faith comes from hearing and hearing comes from the word of God. But who do you think makes the word of God available to us? Mm. Who do you think makes it available for us to hear it? There's only one, and that's the Holy Spirit. 
every single one of us who become Christians have gone to Christians because all of a sudden our eyes are open to the idea that Jesus loved us and had a plan for us. And all that comes from the Holy Spirit revealing that to us, right? It's not me on a stage that's committed to that. It's the Holy Spirit who's made himself known to you. So imagine this, that there's a Holy Spirit who woos you and cheers you that you are a beloved child of God and that he had made a way for you where there was no way. And you go, nope, not going to believe it. Not going to believe it. Nope. What you are doing over and over again, every time that's offered, is you are exchanging truth for a lie. Nope, there is no God who can love me. No, there is no God who's called me to a better life. No, there is no God who can save me. No, there is no God who can walk with me. If it's to be, it better be my performance. What you do every time the Holy Spirit is making himself available to you and revealing it to you, you are shutting it down and you're exchanging truth for a lie. So what you see in Romans 1 is that. It is a, it's a blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. And if you continually uh, reject what the truth that the Holy Spirit shares with you, then you'll never receive his grace for love or forgiveness. So the only unpardonable sin is actually when you shut down the God of the universe. Like right now, hear me. God of the universe loves you. Maybe the Holy Spirit right now is using me to tell you that the God of the universe loves you. And this Christmas, what he wants you to receive is the only gift that matters, which is him. Could you receive that? And you go, nope, I refuse to. Do that over and over again. Eventually, you're going to get your wish. And that is the unpardonable sin that will never be forgiven because you will have rejected any opportunity for forgiveness because you've exchanged the truth of what God wants to offer you for a lie, which is God can't love you. He can't be real. And I'm all that I need. Right? And so what you see is this play out. And so the only real uh, unpardonable sin is you and I, when we continually tell the Holy Spirit we want nothing to do with him. And so that's the picture of the Holy Spirit, exchanging truth for a lie taking what's right and saying it's wrong or taking what's wrong and saying it's right it literally is flipping up uh flipping upside down and inverting what truth is and that is what blasphemy is in its yeah. picture i feel like that's a, a great question because i think as believers we read that and we can get confused oh, and then you. you're like oh no that is the last thing that i yeah. want to do but i think that's just even the point if yeah. you're saying that that means that obviously the Holy Spirit is at work in your life, that you don't desire to blaspheme the yeah. Holy Spirit. Like so, I don't want to exchange truth for a lie. Yes. I want your truth. Now I might, might, might not be great yes. at it. I might not be able to discern it well, but I want your truth in my life. Yeah. So, so I think that's good. This next question, so I want to kind of go back to a question, but I want to go back okay. to what we were talking about this week. So so looking at verse 30, so, uh, so Levi is called to be a follower. He leaves yeah. everything. He has this... Uh, Great feast at his house, a bunch of tax collectors reclining at the table. Verse 30 says this, and it says, And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And so the question from that, and I thought it was a great question, um, is is this, is that uh, Luke sh uh, shares often about the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, the scribes. Mm -hmm. However, in what we have covered so far in Luke, there has been no mention of Sadducees. Is there any indication why Sadducees have not been part of Luke's investigation of Jesus? After all, if anyone is going to contest Jesus as the Son of God, would not the Sadducees? Oh, yeah. Good question. Um, yeah, so scribes. So scribes were originally just like writers of the, the, you know, the scriptures. Ezra in the Old Testament was called a scribe and someone who did that. But they kind of migrated into the teachers because they're the ones who held the scriptures. So yeah. they're the ones who had access to them all the time. So they became the teachers and the elitist group that oversaw the Pharisees. So you got Pharisees and Sadducees. They're two different groups. And kind of what distinguishes them is two things, their class and then their worldview. So Pharisee is just a Greek word, literally means separated, right? So that's why I talk about the three degrees of separated. They were separated by the rest because they were so holy and perfect. They were separate. So their worldview was they perform well, God loves them, right? So the Sadducees were different in that, that Greek word. I want to say means righteous, right? So separated versus righteous. So these are the righteous ones. The only difference really, well, there's lots of difference. One of the main differences between the Pharisees and the Sadducees uh, was uh, Pharisees are more working class. They are more of the people, right? That's what I told you. Scribes kind of teach them and they still have other jobs. They're businessmen and they have this separated sense. Like, like you yeah. would see in our church, what if we were like a really holy club while there'd be a scribe who teaches and there'd be a holy people. Like you, you see that in this kind of fundamental world where that's kind of how it works. So that'd be the Pharisees. They're separated from the culture. They have a scribe kind of leading them, helping them understand the scriptures. And the other thing is Pharisees kind of had this two-pronged approach to their worldview. Um, they believed the scriptures, all the Old Testament would be, you know, particularly the first five books. Uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, they were pretty committed to Moses' holy books and to the rules that followed. Hence, that's why they were separated because they followed the rules no one else did. But they also had this commitment to oral tradition. 
So they had this belief that was kind of, we believe the scriptures, but we believe there can be additions to the scriptures based on new oral traditions mm -hmm. from our scribes and our preachers and those kind of things. So they had this two-pronged approach. It doesn't necessarily have to become the scriptures as long as someone within our, our, our scribe can declare these things. That's why there are so many different kind of sects of uh, you know Pharisees yeah. because they had two-pronged approach. Worldview was scriptures plus the plus the um, you know the oral traditions and they believed in an afterlife and a spiritual realm right? right all true they believed in those things so they believed the in the resurrection of dead people come back to life they were open to that they didn't know how it happened they thought to do with their performance now Sadducees were not working class they were elitist they're at the top of the aristocracy right like, so they were aristocrats they were very high up very 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 elite and they had a different worldview and they were what we'd say like literalists they only yeah. believed particularly in the first stock the and Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and you know, the rest of the Old Testament. And they did not believe in any oral tradition, right? So it was just, if it's in the Word, that's all it is. And they didn't believe in a resurrection. They didn't believe in an afterlife. Right. And they did not believe in um, resurrection, afterlife, or any spiritual realm. No spiritual realm at all. So it was just the here and now. Now, where this played out the deepest is these folks were very committed to Jewish and Greek culture because they were very politicized. So they would have taken a very active role in politics and all those yeah. kind of things where the people wouldn't respect them as much as the Pharisees. Remember, the Pharisees are working class. So you got these two different groups of people. So you got this religious group and the Sadducees were seen as these elitists who were very interested in the political things. They were also very interested in like Hellenistic culture, which would be Jewish and Greek culture kind of mixing. Pharisees come kind of out of the Maccabean revolt. Sadducees are this more elitist class. Right? So you got these two different groups, both hold tight religious uh, values, but they're distinctly different. And so what we see in the scriptures is, in the beginning, what you're going to see is Jesus is amongst the people, right? So what he's doing first is he is uh, not really in the temple yet, right? The first two years, he's going to be in Capernaum. Uh, so yeah, last thing about Sadducees. Sadducees would have had a very high level of authority at the, at the temple, right? Okay. Very political, Jerusalem, Rome, they're all kind of connected there. So the Sadducees would have held tight to the like the temple. Okay. And then the Pharisees would have been more like your local red states, blue states. Like they had been like the local guys out in the rural areas. So that the Pharisees have been very involved in all the local synagogues. So what we see is Jesus starts his ministry in Capernaum and is going to spend the majority of his time for the first two and a half years out in sticks. Yeah. So guess who he's going to interact with out in yeah. the sticks? The Pharisees. Now you get a little bit closer where he's going to move into Bethany, stay at Lazarus, Mary, and Martha's house and start really establishing some stuff at the temple, right? He's going to pivot and start going to the temple and his message is going to get uh, the attention of the Roman government. Hmm. The politics in the temple. So now guess who's going to be oh, in an okay. uproar. So you get to about Luke 20, 1920, I think it's 20, where the Sadducees are finally going to show up and this okay. and Jesus is going to address them. So what you're seeing now is kind of the insurrection happening out in the outer parts amongst okay. the people. Therefore, you're going to have the scribes and Sad uh, Pharisees and now you're going to see the Sadducees come later. I hope that makes sense. Yeah, no, I, think I think that's that right. Sense. Feel free to Google yeah. it. But that, that separated versus uh, righteous, just kind of how they viewed themselves in that. Yeah, and I, I specifically remember the, the difference of not believing in a, in a religious realm and not yeah. believing in resurrection of the dead. Like, I remember yeah. that being the distinguishing factor between those two. So groups. imagine that as a Sadducee. All you have is the here and now, and so yeah. it makes sense you would cling to the people who have the most power and the most pleasure. Yeah. Right. That's going to be the Roman government. So, of course, they're going to be attached to this. Yeah. And so Jesus is literally going to come and tear up both sides, the local yeah. synagogue and the temple. So he's literally going to get it from both sides. Now, yeah. yeah, so there's more I can say about that, but I think that's enough to kind of explain the difference and why you haven't seen the Sadducees show up yet. Yeah, okay. Uh, keep. I want to keep moving, jump into the next question. Um, Great question, so, man. Yeah, I thought that that was a really good question, too. Um, so this says, we see in John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Um, it says, we then we read 1 John 1.15. It says, do not love the world or anything in the world. And John 1, or 1 John 4.4 4 says, you dear children are from God and have overcome um, because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. In the Greek, the word for world, uh, uh, is the Greek word for world the same for each of those or other scriptures giving a different definition or understanding of what is being said about the world? Oh, uh, yeah. So I, I'm, I don't think the issues with the word world, just to say like that, I'm pretty certain it's going to be the same Greek, the cosmos as where that one is for the world. Now, we have to look at is God says two different things. So what we're asking this seems like we're asking, is there a contradiction? Wait, we're not supposed to love the world, but God's supposed to love the world. Why can't we love the world if God loves the world? And it has everything to do with the verb 
that we're talking about. Not the uh, world is cosmos, the noun, the, the place where the affection's going. The word love is what we're asking. God loves the world, but we shouldn't love the world. And that is absolutely true. And I think the reason being is I think it has more to do with the language behind the word love, not the word world. So the language behind that word love, you, you're familiar with this. There's phileo, which is like brotherly love, city of Philadelphia, brotherly love, right? And then there's agape, which is godly love, right? right? That is of highest level, highest precedent, of highest priority, right? So when we're called to love God, agape love, that means he deserves our undivided and unadulterated love and attention, right? Mm. So when he says, do not agape the world, what he's saying is, mm. you cannot be devoted to the world yeah. because you're made to be devoted to me. Got yeah. it? For a first importance, you seek first the kingdom of God, right? That means our first priority, our first love, our agape love. Phileo, yes, love the world, right? Mm. But agape, meaning this is not the thing that satisfies you, fulfills you, sustains you, or can forgive you. Not the world, right? So our first importance is to love God, mm. not the world agape. No. God's first priority is agape to the world. For mm. God, so love the world. God, God's highest priority is mm. loving his people and calling his people back, like sending his son to reconcile, right? So that's God's agape love towards the world. Our agape love is towards God. So our response is we love God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, right? Yeah. Then, as a result of what God, us loving God at highest priority, then we love our neighbor, phileo, as ourself, right? Mm -hmm. So there is this, I think so it has more to do with the verb of love and less to do with the noun of world. Does that make sense at yeah, all? So yeah, yeah. priorities to God, everything else comes out of the overflow of our love for God. We love because he first loves us. We receive agape love, we respond to him, and then we love the world yeah. around us. And so you... First John is going to cover a lot of this. First John yeah. chapter one is going to cover some of this. First John chapter four, beloved, let us love one another for love comes from God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. Who, who that loves not does not know God for God is love. And so it starts with really where the priority of importance is. If that makes, I think that makes sense. Yeah, I think that does make sense. I, I was just reading kind of the next question. It's a, it's a little bit lengthy. So I'm trying to piece this together in, in as uh, kind of as, uh, as, okay simple as possible. So let me, let me just read this. It says, um, when we confess our sins, we are forgiven as if we had not sinned. The operative word is confess. We continue to sin though. It's in our nature while we are here on earth. What is puzzling to me is in 1 John 3, 4 through 10. And uh, I'm just going to kind of yeah, not, yeah. not read through that, but I'm just going to kind of, it, it talks about it. And let me kind of jump to the question. And hopefully this answers your question. If it doesn't, please, please yeah, let yeah. us know. It, send a follow-up email or question. We'd love to hear from that. So um, it says, so if we claim to be children of God, it appears in these verses that we stop sinning. That's what basically 1 John 3, 4 through 10 kind of says. Yeah. So it appears that we stop sinning, yet we continue to sin because it's in our nature in this fallen world. Can you help clarify what happens, uh, what appears to be contradicting itself in Scripture? Yeah, so it does. Uh, so <laughs> it's interesting because, what is it? First uh, John 1. This is where confess sins your mouth, God is faithful and just. But right. it actually tells us, if any of you say you're without sin, you're a liar. Right. right? If you right. say you're without sin, you're a liar and there's no truth in you. What? So I'm a liar if I say I'm without sin. But if I get to 1 John 3, if I have any sin with me, I'm also a, a, a broken sinner who doesn't inherit the kingdom. Okay, John, what are you talking about here? Right? right. And so, and then, and then it gets even crazier. I think it's 1 John 2 where it says something like, um, if you do sin, you have an advocate in the Father. So 1 John 1, you're a sinner. If you say you're not, you're a liar. 1 John 2, and if you do sin, God, will, God you have an advocate in the Father. 1 John 3, no, if you sin, you're you're in big trouble because you're not allowed to sin anymore. And I can understand where this goes, oh, what a, and then in 1 John 4, it says, you better love people. Okay, okay, John, got it, got it. That's a, that's a lot, right? And so really, really, really good question. And so we're gonna, I think we're going to continue to live in this realm of positional versus progressive holiness, right? So there is, remember, I told you just a little while ago, send the noun versus send the verb, right? So one of the neat things is the minute we become a Christian, no longer does God see us as sinners. Send the noun. He makes us right. We are righteous and holy before God. So that's send the noun. So God sees us as positionally right before him because of what Jesus says. In fact, it tells us the first John, if we confess that sin with our mouth, God is faithful and just, meaning he always will forgive it and it's the right thing to do because of what he did for us. He covered that sin. And so he literally is telling the father that's double jeopardy. 
You cannot try them for that sin because I've already paid the price for it. That's double jeopardy. You cannot do that. That is justice, right? And so he tells us that and then says he advocates for it. So what we have to see this holy. So 1 John 1, 2, and 3, I would argue are all about the advocate. Okay, mm -hmm. all about the advocate. So, which is interesting because in John 14, 15, 15, 16, uh, and, and those passages where Jesus says, don't worry, I'm going to the Father, but it's good that I go because you will receive another. That's where it gets advocate. That's different than the, the way that it describes the Holy Spirit as this this pneuma, this breath, right? This wind. This is like more like an attorney, someone who represents you and represents you perfectly. So what Jesus is saying is you will get someone who will represent you perfectly. So it has to do with how you view the advocate. Verse John chapter 1, you have to come to the conclusion that you need an advocate, yeah. right? You have to come to the conclusion like Peter, James, John, Andrew, Levi did, that they are a sinner and they need to repent, right? They need to leave everything they're going and follow him. That's what we see in Levi. And so 1 John chapter 1 is going, have you come to that conclusion yet? The Holy Spirit is making that on you. Is it time for you to repent? And it says immediately they left. So that would be the first response. You come to the conclusion that you're a sinner. And then you go, okay, I'm going to do that. Does that mean they stay away from all the things forever? Well, we see and Peter actually goes back to fishing after Jesus's first, you know, uh, revealing to him, he goes back to fishing, and then Jesus is going to reveal him the grand breakfast sandwiches other fish. It doesn't make much sense to me, but you see that. So he goes back to the life that he once had, and so there is going to be this natural bend to go back to the things that we once left. And so I'm going to try to answer this in a as simple as terms possible, but I don't know that the metaphor works perfectly. So First John one, there's an advocate. We're a sinner. We need an advocate. First John two, when we mess up, he's still the advocate. First John three, hey. This means that our life should be uh, prioritized different, that we should reorder, as St. Augustine says, our loves to Jesus first and not towards our sin. So this has to do with loving the world, loving what we used to do versus loving God. And so it doesn't have, I think when we hear that, we go, let's spend all the time and energy on the behaviors and not go focus on the heart of it. Yeah. So the way that I describe it over and over again is, when we get in First John 1, that we are sinners and we need a savior, that's like we've been adopted by God. So this would be a lot like me adopting an orphan, right? The orphan comes into our home and I love them and I care for them and they're going to mess up. But don't worry, even when they mess up, it doesn't mean I'm not their father anymore. I'm going to continue to be their father, right? No matter what, I'm going to be their father. Like I'm going to be their father, even when they mess up, even, but because they've grown up in a different regime for so much of their life, let's say they come to my home, you know, as a teenager, that means they have 12, 13 years of experience of not having me as their mm -hmm. earthly father and 12, 13 years of trying to figure it out on their own. You can imagine there is a lot of baggage and a lot of muscle memory from the old life. So 1 John 1, can you admit that this is a bad life and you need a father? Yep, 1 John 2, don't worry, you're going to mess up, but the father's going to cover you. Now, but 1 John 3 is saying, but there is now a new trajectory. You hmm. now respond to your sin differently than you did in 1 John 1 because you now see a father who has a better plan for you, right? Hmm. And so it has everything to do with you seeing the advocate. So a um, 17, 18-year-old responds different to me as their father as they did as a 13-year-old who just came to my house, right? Their, their response to me and my love and care is different than it used to be. They fight less. They resist less because they've seen the love play out. They now trust me in that, and they've had more time now to get to the mid-20s, more time in the house than outside the house, right? You you see the progression, but it has less to do with the behavior and more to do with the state of their mind and the state of their heart, right? And so 1 John 3, what it's saying is, if if you keep sinning and you don't care about your sin, then it's almost as if you never really understood your nature before, right? So Romans 1 through 11, Paul is telling us that we are sinners and God came to save us. And then it says in Romans 12, in view of that mercy, that he freed you from sin. No, it's your job to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. In other words, why would you keep crawling back to the very thing that did damage to you in the first. So you should be able to look at your life and see a progression of walking away from sin and towards God. So I would say, 1 John 3 seems to indicate if there is no progression, I'm not talking about in your behavior, but in your heart. If you don't feel anything when you do that thing you used to do and then realize you shouldn't do anymore, if there is nothing in you, if there's not any repentance, any conviction, if there's not, and by conviction, I don't mean shame or guilt. Guilt is saying you're worth less. That comes with the enemy. Conviction is saying you're worth more than this, hmm. right? Oh, Josh, you're worth more than this. If there's none of that, then when I read First John 3, I go, there needs to be some positional sitting before God and go, God, could you break my heart for what breaks yours? Because I'm choosing this thing. I'm loving agape, this sin, this behavior more than I'm loving you. Hmm. If there is no deep conviction about your behavior, 
then there might not be any real evidence that there is real repentance and real surrender. Does it mean you will mess, not mess up anymore? Absolutely not. But does it mean when you mess up, you won't run away from God? It means you'll start running towards mm-hmm. him? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. So a uh, real good litmus to what's going on in your life is if you do the things you did before and still continue to feel nothing, perhaps you've, uh, what it says in Romans chapter 1, they, uh, they exchange the truth for a lie. Mm-hmm. So maybe that's one of this. Mm-hmm. But... The good news is Holy Spirit might be convicting you right now. And all of a sudden, first round three changes where you're going, nope, I want to be different. I want to chase after God. And the reason this is hard to talk about is because I'm so afraid it gets to the behavior that you think it's all about just your response. And you better repent. It's going, no, there's got to be some kind of heart. And it goes back to that word agape is, God, have you reordered your loves to God being first? And you've now said, oh, that thing didn't fulfill me or sustain me. I'm sorry, God. I'm going back to the reorder of seeking you first. That is how you can tell whether or not First John 3 is bringing out conviction in you or it's just revealing uh, yeah. the, the brokenness and numbness of your heart. Hmm. I love the questions and just want to say yeah, thank so you good. for, wow, for yeah. giving those questions. Yeah, yeah. Um, I want to just kind of, I think this is how I'd like to proceed, is just kind of read the rest of, of this verse, ask one final, what yeah. I believe is probably a quick question, and then just turn it over to you for the last few minutes. So, so um, kind of picking it up in verse 30. So the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled at, and at, at his disciples saying, why do you eat with... And drink with tax collectors and sinners. And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And then the last question is, is when Jesus said he did not come to call the righteous, was he implying that there are some who are righteous? No, but there are some people who have exchanged truth for a lie. Yeah. Right? So here's a really good picture of First John 3 at play. Yeah. So there are people that go, Oh, I don't need him. Yeah. Right? I mean, literally, it's more around, oh, he's talking about that guy. Oh, that makes sense. He's going for Levi. I don't need him. Yeah. We got it, bro. You know, like, so So this literally is the picture of First John 2 and 1, 2, and 3. It's going, there are people yeah. who heard that, and their hearts revealed to them that they thought they were righteous. So the reality is, Jesus has no mission if he didn't come to seek and save that which is lost. And you go, but it says he loved the whole world, not just the lost people. Where they're one and the same is the whole world is lost. Mm. So some of these guys are going to get it. Some of these are going to not blaspheme anymore. And they're going to allow the truth of their own nature and their own brokenness to penetrate their heart. And they're going to seek that who came to seek seek and save them, right? And there's others that are going to go, never needed it, don't need it, don't want that, don't do that. And so what Jesus is doing here. Because he's literally drawing a line in the sand. And the reality is the only person that gets to stand in the line in righteousness is just Jesus. And at this point, everybody else should go to the other side of the sand. But what he's doing here is he's going to establishing what he's going to do at the end times, right? Mm. He's going to separate the sheep from the goats. He's going to separate those things and he's going to go, those of you who understand that you are uh, sinners who need repentance, Mm. I'm available to you. Those of you on this side, you're going to be separated even more Mm. as I progress and make myself more known and so the story of this is oh my god revealed to us how unrighteous we are and would first john 3 convict us of our sin and unrighteousness so that we can cling to a lord who saves us advocates for us and invites us into an eternal his eternal presence an eternal partnership with him but it all starts with this acknowledgement that we are sinners in need of a savior Uh, I just want to turn it over to you. I think we've got a couple minutes left. I can't really see. Yeah, um, yeah, two minutes. Uh, so anything else that you wanted to cover, just talk through? Yeah, so I think the important part is, and one of the things I'm wrestling through here is how often, and, you know, we do communion once a month. We do this past week, and so many of you invite your friends who aren't Christians, bring your children who don't know Jesus yet, or invite, you know, neighbors or whatever. And so if we monthly are going to walk through this process of what does it look like to commune with God, should we also monthly or whatever it is, I don't know that time frame, actually invite people into what does it look like to finally repent and accept Jesus? Like mm-hmm. the, So I, I talked about the only yeah. the only invitation is to follow me, but the reality is very few people know the steps that like Jesus yeah. is right here. So should we spend more time and energy, you know, five minutes carving out time to actually have people bow their heads mm-hmm. and walk through this process? And I think I'm leaning towards that, but... Before we get there, for those of you who are just now coming to faith or trying to figure this out, and you keep coming, and I'm so proud of you even for listening to this, I do want to point out that it actually is pretty simple in how you begin this thing. And it begins the way we ended this past Sunday, which is Jesus actually makes a declaration with the, the last meal we talked about um, in Revelation chapter 3. It's not the last meal in the scriptures, but Revelation chapter 3, where Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Right? So that means Jesus literally is, Holy Spirit is knocking and saying, Hey, I I want in on your life. And he says, if anyone will enter, right, 
means anyone will allow me in. Here's what he says. He says he'll open and he'll come, he'll come in and he'll dine with you. In other words, he'll invite you back to the table. And he doesn't make you come across the room. doesn't make you come all the way to heaven. He literally brings the table and the food and the chairs to you. This is so profound. We get removed from the table in Genesis chapter 3 because of our behavior. And then in Revelation chapter 3, same, you know, and so 39 books later, right in the middle of the same thing, right? The same verses, 15 and 16, right? So you're seeing this. Genesis chapter 3, John chapter 3, you know, Revelation chapter 3, there is this picture. So John chapter 3 tells us that God so loved us. Right? Genesis chapter 3 tells us why he had to do what he had to do to save us. And then Revelation 3 tells us how it actually happens. And so I just would say, it really is as simple of just going, yes, Jesus, I want you in my life. Yeah. Right? Even if it's just cracking up the window and going, man, my, my door has been dead bolted. I don't even know if I had the keys to all these things anymore but if it's just going God would you come in would you just say would you please invade me would you come in and if that means just a little bitty crack he'll come in and he'll start revealing himself and showing you his love and he'll start revealing what's different about you and what he wants to change but not in this you're terrible he's ashamed of you but man it's man I have so much planned for you so really the beginning of Christianity your relationship with him is your, your answer to the knock which just goes come in so, we'll just challenge you, like the way that, uh, that Levi did. Would you just consider putting things down right now and inviting him in? Seems like a really appropriate way to start this Christmas season and receive him as I get. And so that's all it takes. Hearing from him as Enoch and just inviting him into your life and letting him do the rest of the work. And little by little, day by day, uh, he'll start transforming you. And uh, you're not, it's not all puppies and rainbows, but I promise you on your first day in heaven, you will not regret opening that door, opening that window. So that's what I'd leave you with. Yeah. Uh, well, I just want to say again, thank you so much for joining us. Really hope and pray that this is an encouragement to you um, and a little bit challenging. We hope that you are encouraged by it, but also that you're challenged to grow a little bit and that you hear God's voice in and through this podcast that you can just kind of go deeper with him. So thank you for joining us. As always, if you have any questions, please feel free to email us over time at clcfamily.church. You can text us um, 610-869-2140. Or if you jump on during the live streaming of this, you can interact with us as well. So thank you so much for joining us. Hope that you are blessed and have a great week. And we hope to see you around. Don't forget trivia on Thursday night at 630 on Facebook Live. Yeah, get ready to finish third place. Maybe second, probably second.